Hello and welcome to one of those podcast-only editions of the Culture File Weekly with me, Luke Clancy, which of course means that it's the Culture File debate time of the month and somewhere adjacent to this file you'll find our latest, which looks at the museum in a time of flux, with guests that include Laura Rykovich, who's author of Culture Strike, Art and Museums in an Age of Protest. Hope you'll enjoy that and find it useful, which is pretty much what we're hoping for here in the lonely pod-only edition, where in a moment we'll have the latest Things Know Things from Jennifer Walsh. We'll chance upon an exhibition built from random found playing cards, peek into a box of heavy metal at Ormston House in Limerick, and collaborate with an AI on some poems. But we begin with Jennifer Walsh and a selection of specialised robots ready for action, as Jennifer sifts through the impressive-slash-disturbing innovations at Tokyo's IRAX trade fair in her latest Things Know Things. Last week in Tokyo, a very important springtime event took place. No, I'm not talking about the blooming of cherry blossom trees. I'm talking about the 24th edition of the International Robot Exhibition, called IREX for short. Over 600 companies displayed their wares at the exhibition, ranging from industrial robots who will clean up chemical waste, through care home robots who will push the elderly around in wheelchairs, to space robots which will help human settlers pursue life on the moon and beyond. As you might expect, IREX was full of humanoid robots who could pick up boxes, do press-ups, converse with humans and so forth. But the star of the show wasn't a humanoid robot. It was a robotic goat. This goat is made by Kawasaki and it's called Bex. It's modelled after an Ibex, a type of wild mountain goat found in Eurasia and Africa. Bex is pretty fancy looking, clad in white plastic cotton abstract geometric lines with red flashing LEDs running up its neck and horns. Bex can trot on its ball-like feet, just like a mountain goat picking its way across treacherous terrain. Or it can kneel, at which point wheels emerge from its thighs and it can drive around, unlike a mountain goat picking its way across treacherous terrain. You can load Bex up with things to carry or even climb aboard yourself and ride Bex around. Bex wasn't the only robot on display at IREX modelled after an animal. The Japanese robotics firm Keenan debuted their robot T8, a delivery robot which takes the form of a cartoon penguin who can transport your dinner from kitchen to restaurant table. Pet Avatar presented glum-looking robotic cats who mirror each other's movements. I lift my pet avatar's paw to stroke my face, and your pet avatar's paw will simultaneously lift and stroke your face as you stare into its sad eyes, no matter where you are in the world. Impressive, but my money is on Yugai Engineering's emotional support robot Amagami Ham Ham, a cute little cuddly robot bear which nibbles your fingertip in one of 24 different nibbling styles, all the while making delightful noises. A robot isn't simply a robot. We assign it a gender, an ethnicity, an age, a class. We assign it a species, 
and we decide whether it's a realistic or abstract or cartoon version of that species. Then we act towards a robot in different ways, depending on the characteristics we assign to it. Bex is designed to fulfil a beast-of-burden function, to cart around heavy loads to save humans the trouble. Lots of robots are designed to do this, but seeing a robot modelled after an animal that has traditionally done this sort of work feels different somehow. What would it feel like to work alongside Bex? Would it feel better or worse than working alongside a humanoid robot hauling boxes? Would there be comfort in an ancient practice taking on a digital form, however surreal? Or would I want to bring Bex to a mountainside and set it free? Jennifer Walsh there with her latest Things Know Things. A hard-won deck of cards next. Deck, an exhibition of found playing cards, is a sidestep of an exhibition by painter Claire Halpin, built from playing cards the artist decked on the street, largely walking around her manor in Dublin 1. After finding her first card, Halpin decided there was nothing for it but to see if she could follow the same process to collect a full deck. It took years, but the deck is now on display around the lab in Foley Street, along with Halpin's tongue-in-cheek infographics documenting her finds and her recordings of schoolchildren and other neighbours describing their favourite card games. Culture File went along for a game of 52-card pickup. Okay, so we are in the lab gallery, uh, Dublin City Council gallery, on the very corner, around Liberty Corner, the corner of Foley Street and... Uh, James Joyce Street, so in the heart of the Monto as such. And this is kind of relevant to the project as well, uh, in so much as that uh, I live at the top of the Monto as such, so I live in Summerhill. Uh, my studio is around the corner in Talbot Street. And I also, as an artist and arts educator, I work with a lot of the local schools as well, who I've inveigled into this uh, project as well. So it's very much stems from the neighbourhood. Many of the found playing cards, most of the ones that were found in Dublin were found in Dublin 1. This project didn't start as an exhibition. It started as a collection of found playing cards. So basically from um, just finding a few cards, like the collection goes back to 2009. That'll give you context now with the Dublin City Council bin Larry going fast. <laughs> it's a very busy thoroughfare. They're obviously not getting to the paths quick enough because they're not getting the cards before you. Well, this is a thing, this is a thing. Like, I mean, and, and it is, that's only a couple of streets, but depending on what time you cross the street at, or exactly. <laughs> so the corner of the gallery we're sitting in here, you, is, it's a glass corner, and around the glass you have uh, pasted playing cards, traditional playing cards as we know them, with the suits and colours that we know. So the collection base here, as I said, started from finding a couple of cards and then uh, over the years, just kind of, as you start to do, you start kind of categorising them into their, you know, suits and, you know, numbers and whatever. And then it seemed like, well, to me, it seemed like a very obvious uh, ambition, which would be to collect a deck. So, um, as I said, it seemed to me that that was obvious, but uh, <laughs> not to the average bit, uh, punter. But then there was a thing, well, it was that a possibility? How long would that take? So there's 207 cards, but it took to get 52 cards. And somebody said to me, oh, that's really good. And I went, based on what? <laughs> 
The first bunch of cards you found, what were you thinking? Like, there was a few together, so what, what did... What well, did you think it happened? There is an interesting thing is that I devised a, kind of my own rules then around um, uh, that idea of um, if there was a few cards, you could only pick up one. Them's is the rules. <laughs> Based on nothing. <laughs> because I was like, sure, if you had a deck, sure, you know, so you could just have the deck made in, you know, no time. <laughs> it wouldn't take 12 years and 207 cards if you were just willy-nilly picking up every card you found. <laughs> Tell us what we're looking at here. So, okay, so what we're looking at here is where uh, the, uh, the, all of the cards, with the assistance of my sister, who, who is a master of, or queen of Excel spreadsheets, we put together this, which is, so it, and I wanted it to be exhibited or put together in, formatted in a way that it looked like, you know, kind of a, an information graphic or something that you go, I must read this and glean some information that will be useful to me. And it's completely useless, and that's it's 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 so unique to the collection. Like you won't learn anything. It's not helpful to from to, from this. Oh, I don't know about that. Found cards by quantity. King of Diamonds is the top found yeah. card. I mean, yeah. that's not without its significance, no, is it? No, no, and that's the thing. And as I said, yeah, I was sure it was coming out the door with Kings of Diamonds. But as for the uh, four of spades, like that was uh, so the last one's there on the right. You can see there's the. the I think it was actually the nine at clubs. I think was actually the last last card. <laughs> there is that thing where you kind of go. I might kind of go. This has been a while since I found it, and there might be one on the ground. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is something with cards. They are kind of like they're involved with magic tricks to begin with, so they have some kind of lean with the occult yeah. in our minds, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, there is the element of chance, obviously, within playing card games. So, obviously, that element of chance, and even the conversation around like, how did these playing cards end up on the street? Like, as I said, we're we're not exactly kind of renowned for playing cards on the street. So, why would there be one playing card and? It was only, I was kind of thinking, well, is it somebody who was, you know, maybe cheating at a game who slipped a spade into the back of their, into their back pocket and then threw it away on the way home? Or somebody who was on a losing streak and, you know, tears the cards and, uh, you know, so I suppose the other thing is that for each found card, it makes a redundant deck. Those, and you can. played the jack and queen but so, it does build up over yeah. so we would have played this on summer holidays and it would have built up even over multiple nights yeah, so like yeah, the last yeah, night yeah. Like there could have been 30p when you first saw a card on the street and you lent to pick it up did you have any notion that that was an art project or are you um, doing a bit of tidying uh, I, I suppose at that point I didn't have a, a concept that it was a, an art project, but as as an artist, one does tend to kind of you know collect things and spot things and you know kind of gather gather and assemble things. Like being a collector isn't unique, you know. But, but people generally kind of go, "Oh no, I don't collect anything. Just this." Oh no, I don't collect anything. Only these, you know, five thousand, you know, <laughs> teddy bears or whatever it is. I really, I am very interested in that idea of collecting and even that thing of, as, a, as an arts educator and a curator, and I work with a lot of different collections as well. Like when I say collections, like I've curated exhibition from like the OPW's collection, from the uh, Dun Dun Rotdown, from different collections. And that idea of 
bringing things together and how you place them together and how you form dialogues or connections between pieces that is, is such like may never may never have met before. That really interests me. It isn't necessarily around skill. Like I don't have a skill in finding cards. Some people might say I do, but you know, time and chance. I'm kind of interested in those overlaps between the finding of the cards and playing of card games that aren't necessarily skill-based. I remember this was an interview with Patty Smith and she was in, I think, um, Virginia Woolf's house or something and she was saying uh, in the bedroom, I really like this place here because you see over there there's always a little rainbow on the wall. And there was. And, and she said, well, you know, and they say there's a glass of water and it goes through there and it fractures. Right. But there's no point in saying it's a glass of water. You're in this incredible space. This incredible thing is happening. Why explain it away to prove yeah. that it's banal? You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like, there isn't an explanation. There isn't an algorithm. Like there is no logic to it. Hello. Claire Halpin there, and her exhibition deck runs at the Lab Dublin until April twenty third. Everything AI knows about poetry next on the Culture File Weekly. Shadow Once Complete is a touring show from Larissa O'Grady and David Bremner. For it, the violinist and the composer have teamed up with writers who've used AI in the creation of texts, which are then incorporated into the performance in what the company calls algorithmic storytelling. Culture File met laptop side with human poet Kit Fryatt to hear about some of the process of collaborating with an AI poet which, for Friard, began with seeding an AI with keywords related to a lost medieval painting which once graced the walls of St Auden's Church in Dublin. Here, listen. Do you, do you want me to just read some of the... Well, if, if you, it would be great is if you told me the words that went in. This was the, this was the one for decay and uh, wall painting. Um, decay is an inevitable part of life. It is what happens when something is used or worn out and can no longer be used or maintained. The same is true for walls. Over time, the paint and the mortar that held it together began to wear away until the wall was nothing but a pile of rubble. I'm Kit Fryatt. I'm a lecturer in the School of English in DCU, um, where I teach mostly poetry and I also write poetry. This one is for donor and um, sulphur dioxide, which is the, the main sort of constituent of the pollution that destroys the painting. Donor sperm is a valuable commodity in the world of fertility treatments. But what happens when the donor's DNA is incompatible with the recipients? That's where sulphur dioxide comes in. Sulphur dioxide is a gas that can be used to help create a successful pregnancy when donor sperm and recipient egg are not compatible. Poets do use um, AI to generate ideas, to generate text, to um, make text to play with. Um, In the text that I used for Shadow Once Complete, I did use an AI element, not one that I understand. It's all a complete mystery, witchcraft to me. Um, But I did use uh, AI to generate some text. By bombarding the egg with sulphur dioxide, the egg can start to change its DNA. This can help create a healthy embryo that can be transferred to the recipient's uterus. 
with that one, I really saw it. It was, you know, kind of, uh, it was kind of almost like this preoccupation with the incarnation was 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 appearing in the in the AI text. It's make it's making all that up. Then that's not that's yes. not true. <laughs> yeah, no, it's not true. No, absolutely not true. No, no, I think it would be very dangerous. In fact, David got in touch and said, "Would you would you like to write some text for for this?" And I said, "Sure." Um, it sounded very interesting. I said that I'd been interested for a long time in in medieval wall paintings um, of which many survive in the part of England that I'm originally from, from East Anglia but there are very few surviving ones in, in Ireland um, there was one in, uh, in St Aidan's, um, which was discovered in the late 19th century, um, but it was destroyed in fairly short order because at that time part of the church was unroofed, um, so it was destroyed by pollution and weather fairly fairly quickly. I used uh, a storytelling AI where you could um, plug in just a couple of words and this would give you... Um, a piece of narrative, a piece of story text. Um, and the words that I usually used were to do with either decay, with medieval things, with um, wall paintings, because those were the preoccupations that I had at the time of writing the text. I think this, this was the one for The Holy Ghost and calcium carbonate. The painting uh, was a painting of the Trinity, so uh, it's God the Father uh, with the cruci- holding the crucified Son and the Holy Ghost as um, a, a dove. The, the painting was on plaster, um, which had a high calcium carbonate um, uh, uh, content. Most people know calcium carbonate as the main ingredient in chalk and limestone but few are aware that it is also the main component of aragonite, a mineral that makes up the structure of the ocean floor. Aragonite is famous for its beautiful clear colours, and it's also used in jewellery and other decorative objects. The Holy Ghost, it seems, is also a calcium carbonate mineral. You feel like there's a sense of humour in there. (laughs) Yes, yes, I think so, yes. How exactly does your text work with the music? What's the relationship between what we're hearing and what we're seeing? Um, the, the relationship, I believe, is generated by David's programme. So when Larissa plays a certain note, that will bring up a certain word. One of the things that always sort of slightly kind of snags me is this notion that the, the AI just kind of gives a semblance of meaning and to it nothing means anything and so words don't mean anything other than a, a collection of characters and the pattern in their characters. But actually, not, not just in sound poetry, but in poetry where the typographical elements are very important, that's not, um, that's not a completely alien idea. Absolutely. I think there's, you know, there are several strands there. You mentioned sound poetry, um, you mentioned for, forms of visual poetry, which sort of um, dismantle words and, and treat words as kind of these uh, kind of material building blocks um, rather than just sort of communication or transparent communication devices. Um, and I think um, language poetry does something similar. Again, it's not about sort of necessarily communicating a message but about um using language as 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 material sort of um as blocks as as bric-a-brac investigating 
the textures of language in that way. And I think that's something that's really nice to do inside a structure that's hundreds of years old, that's been dismantled um, and, you know, kind of reassembled in, in all sorts of uh, ways, you know, that um, St. Aidan's was, even to start with, it was a bit of a bric- bric-a-brac. One of the interesting things that happens with an AI is that we kind of assume agency in some sense or or an unconscious which brings all of this together. When you meet what the AI creates, do you feel that you're that there's a subject there that you're meeting? Yes, I think so. Again, it's this sort of I think it's this sort of compulsion to make patterns, you know, to 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 find meaning. We're such desperately meaning-making creatures. I think we're sort of projecting our own selfhood onto something which has none. It's it's kind of looking in the mirror and the patterns that we see are actually those of uh, our own preoccupations being reflected back at us. Kit Fryatt there on his machine collaboration for Shadow Once Complete, which you can see slash hear at St Audens Church Dublin on Sunday at 6pm and at the National Print Museum on March 30th. Tickets from Eventbrite. And finally, the art of metal. As part of an exhibition called Engine of Hell, Ormston House in Limerick was recently wired up as a rehearsal space for local metal bands of all hues, from dark to doom, sludge to slippery. Mind how you go there. For her work models of practice, the artist Michelle Doyle assembled eight bands to use the space and invited the public to eavesdrop on the music-making-slash-breaking process, spying through little windows and listening to the sound that spilled out. Culture Files' Anya Gallagher went to meet Doyle and her collaborators where she was invited into the sacred space to have a sniff around. It would smell like stale beer, also sweat, and a shared microphone would smell like cheese. So I'm Michelle Doyle and I'm an artist and I work in film, I work in sculpture and I also now do socially engaged projects and I do publications as well. In this space we have windows for the public to look in. So we wanted to highlight maybe some some things that you maybe necessarily don't get to see when you go see a band. So for instance there's a window behind the drummer's feet so you can see exactly what the drummer is doing. And actually, we found that the audience are the ones who are kind of the ones who are shy and not the bands. The bands don't really mind as much. And, you know, if you catch someone's eye, they'll, they'll wink at you from the box. But um, the bands kind of, uh, they sort of own the box. And, you know, as a viewer, you're the person who's being allowed to see in. And, you know, we, we wanted to make the windows in such a way that you wouldn't be able to just roll up a chair and look. You actually had to work to look and... So that's why they're placed in different locations and like, you know, they're not set up for the audience's comfort. They're set up for the audience to have a kind of a peek in. Engine of Hell is a current project at Ormson House and it is a month-long series of events, artworks and interventions by different musicians and artists. So my name is Kevin Walsh. Uh, I'm a curator and a musician from Limerick. I work at Ormston House, a cultural resource centre in the middle of Limerick City. Engine of Hell takes its title from the 1934 anti-jazz campaign. So Father Peter Conifree, who led the campaign, who was a priest based in Clinlow in County Leitrim, 
uh, described jazz as an engine of hell sent from abroad to do the devil's work. And for me, that started thinking about ideas around censorship, uh, the control of music, how people receive music when music is contested. Models of Practice is a practice space and we built it as part of this exhibition because we want to talk about a few different issues around making music. I wanted to talk about the aesthetic value of rehearsal. I think a lot of people who go to see music, they see the performance. They don't actually see what happens in the background towards that. So when they go to see music, the idea has already happened and they're seeing a performance of the idea so we wanted to try and make a piece that was about when these ideas are made and how they're made and the kind of tensions where they are made and anyone who's ever been in a band or been in a practice space knows there's a lot of tension so my name is julia pavlak i am a member of red sun alert i'm the front woman uh so i do a bit of singing but a guitaring <laughs> and we're from Cork City um, I'm actually from Poland but I've been living in Ireland for good years now about 13 13 years and I met all the lads in school actually I went to primary school with one the drummer and then the rest is history <laughs> we like to describe ourselves as a sort of post-hardcore band I think it's quite difficult to put us into one genre because um, we just take a lot of influences from different bands but Post-hardcore is kind of what we say, you know, some elements of punk in there as well. So, of course, um, being the only woman in my band uh, can <laughs> can equate to a few a few arguments uh, sometimes because the guys just don't get it. Um, and I definitely have a fiery personality, especially, you know, when you kind of get comfortable with people, you tend to, you tend to get a little bit me. <laughs> That's how I'm going to describe it, me. So uh, when it comes to if there's ever tension or anything, you know, it's usually it's it's usually my fault. I'm going to say it. And I'm sorry. Sorry, guys. But most of the time, it's me just being an angry brat. Uh, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely it's nice to have a few uh, smiley faces looking in and waving uh, so you're definitely a little bit more exposed in that way because um, I mean when we rehearse it's it's definitely um, takes me a little bit of time to kind of get around or what I'm playing what I'm singing so I'm making all the mistakes I'm just hopeful that the people don't think that I'm rubbish <laughs> that's really it so no it's it's different but it's cool and we're really really grateful to actually have this time um, to do our practice we're kind of allocating this to do some writing we are actually just finished recording and mixing an album so that'll be out soon uh, so we're really glad that we actually have the time to do some writing because it's been quite some time we are all in our final year of music college so um, it's been it's been very busy and uh, we haven't really had a chance to get the ideas together properly so Really glad to actually have this. And, you know, it's it's nice to see if you're smiling faces. People are interested, so it's cool. You know, a lot of it is creative where, like, people are bringing in ideas and other people are trashing those ideas. So there is, you know, obviously that's going more into the negative side of things. But um, 
on the positives, like, you know, these are social spaces. So these are spaces where people come together and they work together. They're also workspaces. And a lot of these spaces are unsafe. And um, there's a lot of these spaces that are um, in very precarious locations. A lot of these are in locations that are temporary. You know, since coming down to Limerick, I found out that a lot of people practice in shipping containers that have no heating and no electricity. So electricity is ran down to these spaces. So we wanted to kind of make a piece as well about like the nature of making music itself in Ireland right now and how difficult that is, especially for heavier music like metal and punk. So that's a big part of it as well, is just that, you know, this is about space and it's about people coming together to utilize space. The sounds of red sun alert there, ending that report from Anya Gallagher and bringing to a close this edition of the Culture File Weekly. We'll be back with more Closely Observed Creation next Saturday tea time. Till then, bye now.